If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the Old Testament book of Jeremiah, the 18th chapter. And I want to look at the third through sixth verse. Again, that's the Old Testament, Jeremiah, the 18th chapter, looking at verse 3 through 6. So I went down to the potter's house, and there he was working at his wheel. And the vessel he was making of clay was spoiled in the potter's hands. And he reworked it into another vessel as it seemed good to the potter to do. Then the word of the Lord came to me, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter has done? Declares the Lord, behold, like the clay in the potter's hands, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. For a few minutes tonight, I want to look at the thought, damaged goods in good hands. Damaged goods in good hands. My brothers and sisters, I must admit to you, when I first met Pastor Youngblood, there was something about him that was different, that I had never seen in all my life. And like Joel said, I've been in church since before I knew what my life was. And I had never encountered a pastor like Johnny Ray Youngblood. And to my surprising, I became curious. I began to ask my friends who were from the New York area and who were of the Baptist denomination and who I considered to be average, average churchgoers, um, tell me a little about this Johnny Youngblood character. And all they would tell me was that, number one, he can preach, and number two, he cusses. And it almost seemed like they spent more time talking about him cussing than they talked about him preaching. And so I went to talk to a few preachers, and I asked them, what do you think about Johnny Ray Youngblood? And most of their comments were along the same lines, or they would emphasize the fact that he wasn't AME. Except for one preacher, a good friend of my dad, the Reverend Dr. Dan Albert Turk, who pastors in Harlem, he said to me, if you don't get bothered by him cussing, you will be in good hands. And if any of you have ever been in a conversation with me, I'm certain that we can safely deduce that I have no problem with cussing. And the reality, my brothers and sisters, is that in my life, I needed a pastor who would be able to guide me through the turbulence and rough times of my life. The fact about my life at that time is that I was ready to give God this mantle of preaching back and tell him he can keep it because I was a damaged vessel that got damaged in church. I was a vessel used by God, called to preach, realized I was preaching at 6, preached my first sermon at 12, was licensed to preach at 18, and all of a sudden, life got crazy for me. And, 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 and so... I decided that I was almost done with God. I would go back and forth to Bermuda, and on this one particular trip, I discovered that the license to preach that was issued to me was revoked, and I came back and shared it with Doc because I considered him to be a strong mentor at the time, and he said to me, well, what you gonna do? You got to make a decision. And in the following weeks, we would sit and meet and talk and discuss about how I felt and how I was processing all of this that was going on in my life. And then I began to notice that Pastor Youngblood 
would begin to challenge me on how I would think and my views about ministry. And eventually the conversation came up and where he asked if I would consider him licensing me. Initially, I will admit that I was glad. But that feeling quickly changed when I realized that I was stepping into an arena that I really had no clue about. Once again, I sought advice from preachers that I had respected. And a bit, a bit of advice that had helped me to make my decisions was when two preachers gave me two contrasting pieces of advice. One preacher said, man, you got it easy staying with the church. Just finish your degree and you can ride into your ordination on your dad's coattail." What you went through, it ain't that bad. In a few years, it'll all just blow over and you'll forget all about it. Needless to say that my, my reply to him would have been similar to what Pastor Youngblood would have said. And so it was some colorful language when I told him how I felt. The other preacher said to me, Brandon, don't take the easy way out. I've seen you grow over the last few years and... I know that God has his hand on you, and I just need you to understand this, that if God is leading you to Pastor Youngblood, then I believe that you will be in good hands, especially with what's been going on in your life over the last through years. I went through this angry phase because Doc saw in me what I was expecting the church that I grew up to see, but then I remembered what Dr. Turk and Dr. Beeman said to me, that I would be in good hands. And so I had to ask, what is it about this man that people always kept saying, you'll be in good hands, you'll be all right, you'll be all right. And they would not hesitate to tell me to go with Pastor Youngblood. Now I heard the testimonies from many brothers who talked about how Pastor affected change in their life and he became involved and he taught them and help them to grow and help them become Christians, help them become strong black men and still serving God while still being a man, being able to sit down and talk Bible while having a cold Heineken, how he transformed East New York. I was curious about all of this, but can I tell you a secret? I was not there. So I'm a little jealous of y'all because you were able to experience him a little bit before I got involved, and so I had to play catch-up. And I had to find out what is it about this man that makes him who, who he is. I couldn't be able to figure out a word to describe him, so I just had to say who he is. And it was in my discovery and getting to know Pastor Youngblood that I did that. I found out. And tonight this text gives us an accurate description of what I found out. I would like to share with you three characteristics about the potter in this text that will give us a, bread, a better appreciation of Pastor Youngblood. Number one, the potter is invested into the clay. Number two, the potter molds the clay. And number three, the potter restores the clay. Let's look at the first characteristic of the potter. Notice in the text, God says to Jeremiah, arise and go to the potter's house, and there I will let you hear my word. I had to ask a question right there. God, if you're going to speak to Jeremiah, and Jeremiah knows that this is sermon preparation time while he's going to the potter's house, why is it that God would send him to the potter's house and not the potter's shop if he needs to learn about pottery? See, you would expect the potter to be working at his shop. 
You would expect the potter to be making vessels at his workshop because that is his place of business. That's where he eats. That's where he's able to provide for his home and for his family. But God sends Jeremiah to the potter's house. Can I suggest to you that the reason that Jeremiah sends, that Jeremiah goes to the potter's house rather than to the business is because God had to show Jeremiah the dedication that the potter puts into the clay and into his craft. Like I said, you would expect to see the potter there working at his shop. But when you get to his house, you would expect to find the potter chilling. You would expect to find the potter enjoying downtime with his family, maybe watching TV, maybe reading a book, maybe hanging out in the backyard with the fellas. But in this text, we see that the potter is at his house and he is working. Can't you hear Jeremiah? Because you do remember that Jeremiah dictates his writing to Baruch. Later, We find that out later on in the book. You do remember that, right? And so can't you hear Jeremiah says, yeah, I went to the potter's house, and there he was, working. There, I mean, like he ain't got nothing else better to do. He's working. Can't you almost hear like Jeremiah scratching his head, almost in complaint as to why the potter was working on pottery outside of his designated workplace? And then also notice that it appears that the potter has peace while he's doing the work in his house. And time won't necessarily permit me to go into that, but can I just interject this right here? Don't you know that it is so annoying? And I'm talking from a PK's perspective now. When you are in your house and your dad is the pastor and you get the knocks on the doors, reverend, or the phone rings, reverend, or I gotta go to a meeting, all right, Dad. Or can't, do you know how annoying it is that the potter brings work home from the shop? Well, can I tell you something that I saw in Joel? The psalmist put it like this. I once was young, and now I'm old. Let me make it a little personal. I never saw my daddy forsaken. And me, my brother, and my sister, we never went hungry. We were never begging bread, so I've learned now to thank God that the potter would bring the work home. Also, the potter's work is not one that can be confined within normal working hours. And if the potter is going to make useful vessels, then he has to constantly work on the vessels. Because the truth of the matter is, is that it takes a long time to get the clay from the ground to a finished product. Can I take you very quickly through the process that the potter handles the clay before he gets it to a point where it's ready to be placed on the wheel and just to be shaped? Firstly, the potter has to dig the clay from the ground. And then he allows it to weatherize for weeks at a time. And after these weeks of weatherization, he places the clay into a trough and he covers it with seawater. And he leaves it there so that the impurities can be removed from the clay. Also, it is in this seawater that the lumps that are in the clay that were in the ground are able to soften. And then the potter then has to come behind and stir this substance called slip so that all of the lumps can dissolve. After this, the potter then takes this substance and he dumps it into a tank. And he leaves it in this tank for six months so that it can settle. 
after it is settled, he then treads on the clay under his feet so that way he can continue to work out the lumps and any rocks that may be in the clay, and then he leaves it for another six months. This allows the plasticity and the pliability of the clay to develop and to increase so that way when the potter is ready to put it on the wheel, he can make a useful vessel. Has anybody over here ever felt like sometimes pastor put you in this process and you wonder why did I have to go through this process? Why did you, it felt like you dug me out of the ground and then it felt like you just left me here by myself. Is there anybody other than me that can testify to the fact that sometimes you did not understand what the potter was doing? But after the process that the potter does with the raw ingredients, he begins to mold the clay. The impurities have been removed, and it seems as if the manhandling of the clay is over. However, the manhandling is just about to begin because the potter takes the clay and he places it on his wheel. And what he does with the clay on the wheel is he has to use some tools so that he can continue to develop the clay. And one of the tools that he uses is a mallet. And the mallet is used to beat the clay so that it can remove any air bubbles or air pockets. So that way in the final product you won't have any weak spots. Now a vessel. A vessel according to definition is something that is prepared for a purpose of holding something. Or according to the British political theorist and author H.J. Lasky, a vessel is a person into whom some quality as grace is infused. That is, a child of light or a true vessel of the Lord. Notice in this text we see where the clay is. The clay is located in the hands of the potter. This op these open hands in the text signify power, means, and direction, but what is more important is the location of the vessel as it relates to the potter. The vessel is in the palms of the potter's hand while the wheel is spinning so that during the molding and shaping process, the clay, number one, will not fall out of shape or number two, fall off of the wheel. But secondly, it also exemplifies how careful and loving and kind the potter is when he deals with the clay. For me, this summarizes why pastors take time to get, know, to get to know their members and formulate these individual connections. It's because he's guiding them and protecting them from falling off the wheel. However, 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 sometimes despite the preparation of the clay and despite the care of the potter, there is the possibility that the vessel can mess up. As one of my favorite preachers, Reverend Terry Anderson, pastor of the Lily Grove Baptist Church in Houston, Texas says, it's not the potter, but it's the clay. In the text, the potter comes to a halt when, he seem, when it seems as if his hard work has now gone down the drain because he notices there is an imperfection in the vessel that he was making. Now, remember, mind you, he's taken a whole year and some change just to get the clay to a point where he's ready to put it on the wheel. And now that he's taken this time, he's got it on the wheel, he's spinning it, and he's working it. And I can imagine that it's hot in this shop because he's got an oven with a fire going on so he can put the stuff in at the end. I can imagine and how the potter is feeling, and then all of a sudden, the clay and the vessel is messed up. 
maybe the clay became too stiff, or maybe it became too soft, or maybe it just had some weak spots that caused it to be disformed and out of and contorted. Exactly what the cause was, it doesn't really matter. What matters is that the hands that were working on the vessel now becomes hands that have to take action. Since the potter has invested time and energy into the clay and has already started molding the clay, to throw it away would be a bigger waste. And so the potter decides that I'm going to rework the damaged vessel and create something new. So my third point is that the potter molds, he restores the clay. Jeremiah, he observes that once the potter noticed the imperfection in the vessel, he stopped working as he was and began to fix the vessel. Now, in pottery, they tell you that when you are working on a vessel and you discover that there is some type of imperfection and it's on the wheel, you have to, number one, stop what you're doing. You have to either add water, add some type of dry substance. But a definite process that you have to do to the clay is you have to bring back out that mallet and you have to smash it down so that you can remove those impurities that caused it to be disformed and dysfunctional in the first place. In other words, in other words the potter sees beyond the imperfections and he sees the potential and the possibilities in the clay. And then not only does he see the possibilities and he sees the potential, but he acts on that, that potential and he acts on those possibilities and he reworks, he makes it again into another vessel that seems good to the potter. Come on here, Bible. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Behold, all things, all things have passed away and behold that all things have become As I prepare to head to my seat, our pastor is a vessel who's been damaged in the hands of the potter, and God has put him back together again. He took him through the process of digging him out of the ground. He put him on the table so that he could beat out some of those weak spots. He treaded under his feet to remove the lumps before he could place them onto the wheel and shape them into a vessel. Remember I said that a vessel is something prepared for a purpose, to hold something. Maybe that something was to preach the gospel. Maybe that something was to lift black men. Maybe it was to build God's kingdom. Maybe it was to hold the birth of my offer. Maybe it was to hold emancipated, to start the Ma'afa Ma'afa University, to enable Eldad Medad to teach about elders rule. But thank God that he never took his hands off of him. Through sickness, he never took his hands off of him. Through a public divorce, he never took his hands off him. Through leaving St. Paul, he never took his hands off of him. Having a child before marriage, I'm not there yet, hold on. He never took his hands off him. He lost friends and mentors, but he never took his hands off him. And I'm so glad that God had never took his hands off of him because he is now a potter that has to deal with us as vessels. And I'm so glad that sometimes he digs us out of the clay. I'm so glad that sometimes he puts us on the table and he beats us. I'm thankful that sometimes 
He has to cuss us out to get us to act right. But it's all because he loves us. Is there anybody who can testify that God is working through the potter? Can you thank him for digging you from the ground? Can you thank him for beating you? Can you thank him for taking the weak spots out of you? But now, 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 now I've told you, I've told you about our potter. But there is another potter who had us in his hands. And one Friday, on a hill called Calvary, he took us in his hands. He had spent time investing in us. He spent time digging us out of the ground. He spent time getting us to a usable condition. But I'm so glad that he took all of my imperfections and he put them in the potter's hands. In case you have fallen by the wayside of life, dreams and visions scattered, you are broken inside. You don't have to stay in the shape that you're in because the potter wants to put you back together again. You who are broken, stop by. You who need mending, stop by. Everything you need is in the potter's house. There's joy in the potter's house. There's love in the potter's house. There's salvation in the potter's house. Everything, everything you need is in the potter's house. So can I tell you my testimony? I was sinking deep in sin, far from the peaceful shore. Very deeply stained within, I was sinking to rise no more. But the master of the sea, he heard, he heard, he heard my despairing cry. And from the waters, he lifted me. Now safe, safe am I. Love lifted me. Love lifted me when nothing else, when nothing else could help. I tried running, that didn't work. I tried hiding, that didn't work. I tried drinking, that didn't work. But when nothing else would help, love lifted me. sinking sand he lifted me from shades of night eternal light oh praise his name he lifted me is there anybody here who can testify that the Lord picked you up he turned he turned you around and he placed your feet on solid ground 